Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I am your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. The confusion, please God, stops here. And uh, we have a very full show for you today. Uh, We've got a Reasons for Faith segment where we'll be talking about the greatest gift that God, uh, Jesus and God the Father, ever gave to the Church, that which makes you holy, (laughs) starting off with rented lips today, makes you holy and pleasing to Him and strong in the faith, namely the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we will see how the love between the Father and the Son can actually constitute a third person in the one divine nature, and how He lives in your soul as in a temple when you are in a state of grace. We will also answer the question, what is the single most important insight that God has revealed to us? But now I open the show, or I want to open the show with the response from today's responsorial psalm in the ordinary form, which is, Rejoice, O hearts that seek the Lord. You know, last year we were not uh, able to attend Easter Mass because of the coronavirus restrictions. And I remember the weirdness of watching Pope Francis on television all alone in St. Peter's Square on Easter. And of course, this year, many Catholics were still unable to assist at the Holy Mass. My family, uh, thanks be to God, was able to assist at Mass. We had a beautiful triduum at our parish, celebrated in the extraordinary form. My youngest, John, was actually got to be Master of Ceremonies for the Holy Thursday uh, Mass of the Lord's Supper in the extraordinary form. But coronavirus notwithstanding, it is once again Easter time, and our journey to the Father's kingdom continues despite uh, the ongoing restrictions. You know, I said a year ago that I thought we had reached the point where we were suffering, uh, uh, many of us at least, were suffering more from the restrictions than from the virus. And a year later, I think that there's frankly no denying that that remains the case. And in any case, a lot of people are suffering. But as Catholic Christians, we know that if God allows us to suffer, then that suffering has meaning. And God will always bring good out of the evil that he allows. Church has always taught that suffering is good. It's good for the just and it's good for the sinner. Suffering is good for the sinner because it uh, is an opportunity for conversion. And it's good for the just because suffering is a means of obtaining greater merit. And that's why St. Paul tells us to rejoice. He says, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Hence the response from today's Holy Mass in the ordinary form. Rejoice, O hearts that seek the Lord. This is the theme of Easter week. And last year, the, the response on Easter Wednesday was, let all the earth cry out to God with joy. I actually took a look at the, my notes from uh, the Easter Wednesday of last year. And I asked then, how can we be joyful at such a time as this? You know, and... That question that I answered a a year ago, the answer remains the same. The secret lies in having a thankful heart. Gratitude is always welcome, isn't it? Yeah, one of my favorite stories from my Hollywood days is I was doing warm-up on the TV show Friends. And uh, one week, we had a guest star. Tom Selleck was uh, guest starring on the program. And... We shot one of his episodes on Oscar night that year. And so when, when the filming was over, the cast and the crew just left a skid mark on their way out of the studio off to their fancy Hollywood parties for, for Oscar night. Um, and Betty and I had just moved from Hollywood down to Orange County to help take care of her mom, who had uh, gotten lung cancer. So I was looking forward to a, a longish commute rather than a, ho- a Hollywood party. 
And so I went down to the set to raid the craft service table. That's where they put out the snacks for all the union people. And since everybody was gone, I figured it was okay for me to go down there and grab a Diet Coke and uh, some cookies or something for the ride home. And who should I run into but Tom Selleck? And he said hello to me. And so I introduced myself. Hi, Mr. Selleck. I enjoy your work. My name is Matthew Arnold. I was doing warm-up tonight. And he said, I know. He said, I, and you did a great job. And I just wanted to come over and say thank you. Now, you know what? He didn't have to say that. And it was just a small thing, but I'll never forget it. Gratitude is always welcome. Uh, last year, I was reading an article by Father John Hampsch. And I remember the first time I met him. Uh, it was back when we were doing the original Reasons for Faith Live on uh, EWTN from our, uh, our other studios that were here in Covina at that time. And uh, Tim Stables was having some health issues, and I was sitting in for him uh, for a number of weeks. And Father Hampsch, we had arranged to have him be our in-studio guest. And we were talking before the show, and I asked, you know, is there anything I can get you? And he said, sure, I'd, like, I'd love a cup of coffee. And I asked him, how do you take it? And, uh, and I went off to our, you know, little break room and, and uh, fixed his coffee for him, and I brought it back. And he tasted it, and I asked him, how is it? And he said, it's perfect. Thank you. He said, I will personally lead the cause for your canonization. And, and obviously, that's just a little joke and probably one that he made a thousand times. But I'll never forget it because gratitude is always welcome, especially if it's coming from a quarter where maybe you don't really expect it, like a big Hollywood star or, or you know, a, 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 someone who's a guest on your program. And, and it's the same with our relationship with God. You know, Thanksgiving, it's, we learned last week uh, that Thanksgiving is one of the four great ends of prayer and one of the four great ends of the greatest prayer, which is the Holy Mass. And we can always give, always give thanks and praise to God. You know, not just at Mass, not just at church, but you can give thanks and praise to God anywhere, at home alone or, or in the car or, or whatever, and, and regardless of, of the circumstances. And, and Father Hamsch uh, wrote an article called Counting Your Uncounted Blessings, which you can find on catholicbooks.net. And I thought how appropriate it was for that current situation, not only a year ago, but maybe even more now. And, and he illustrates uh, in the article, he, he says, imagine having a dish of sand that uh, has iron filings mixed in it. And he says, if you put your fingers in there and try and search out all those little iron filings, chances are you're going to meet with very little success. He said, but if you sweep a magnet through the sand, it would draw all those iron filings to itself. And it said, he said that the unthankful heart is like a finger in the, in the sand, and it discovers comparatively few of God's blessings. But a truly thankful heart will sweep like a magnet through the circumstances of life, finding God's blessings frequently even in the smallest events of life, whether those events are delightful or, or hurtful. The grateful heart will embrace God's will with thanks no matter what happens, as St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. This is poverty of spirit that our Lord talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Father Hampsch said that just as the magnet finds the iron, so will the thankful heart give thanks to God, the Father, at all times, and in everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, again, quoting St. Paul, this time from Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, my wife Betty and I we have six children. Now, they're mostly grown now adults and some of them out of the house with their own lives and uh, children and so forth. 
But when they were little, you know, we, we were like the typical Catholic homeschooling family. We had one of those big white 12 passenger vans all loaded down with strollers and diaper bags and, and all the paraphernalia that you need when you have a bunch of little kids. And anytime we would go somewhere, it was always a major undertaking. And my wife and the kids would always pray to their guardian angels to find us a good parking space. And I can tell you what rarely failed. And I think the reason why is that whenever we did get one of those good parking spots, my wife would say, thank you, angels, and, and have the kids do the same. And St. Paul says to give thanks to God the Father at all times and in everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therein lies the secret. We're not asked to be thankful for everything, right? You think of these circumstances, you know, we're talking about the coronavirus restrictions or, or you know, the death of a loved one or, or, or the infidelity of your spouse. You, you can't expect it to be thankful for those things, but we should be thankful in every situation by faithfully holding the conviction that God's providence works in and through all those situations, good and bad, for our spiritual advantage. Think of St. Paul's unanswered prayer uh, for healing in 2 Corinthians 12. He tells us that God had put a thorn in his side. We don't exactly know what that is, but we know that he was suffering. And he says, three times I begged the Lord to make the suffering go away, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So St. Paul says, I'd rather boast most gladly of my weaknesses in order that the power of Christ may dwell in me. In every truly godly soul, this, this magnet of thanksgiveness or uh, thankfulness, uh, like Father Hampshed, is going to find these blessings that inspire gratitude to God in the heart. Because in the view of heaven, it's not specks of iron, it's, it's little nuggets of gold. And there's an old saying, I walked a mile with pleasure, she chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And I can say I, I've learned to appreciate a lot of things uh, during this last year. When we were unable to go to Mass, for example, I, I gained a much richer experience of the Liturgy of the Hours, right? The, the Divine Office, that's the other official liturgical prayer of the Church. And, and I know that when I pray that prayer, even by myself, I'm united with Catholics all over the world who are praying these same prayers, primarily the, the Psalms, which are filled with, with thanks and, and praise and, and hope and, and represent every conceivable situation in life. And these were the prayers of our Lord and Our Lady and St. Joseph and, and St. Bernard of Clairvaux and Thomas Aquinas and Catherine of Siena and, and, and Thomas Kempis, And they're the prayers of the Church today. You know, Father Hampshed, in, in every event of life, the Lord is testing our reliance on him and waiting for our grateful acknowledgement of his powerful grace, working quietly in our lives. Our filial trust in God finds its most sublime expression in one of the seven gifts of the Spirit called piety. In a truly pious soul, hidden blessings grow more obvious and gratitude becomes fervent. And that is no nonsense. Okay, going into our first break, uh, and that'll give me the opportunity to thank God for you, for your support of VMPR, Spiritual and Financial. And when we come back, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when we return, evidence for the resurrection. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio, No-Nonsense Catholic, your internet home for Keep It Simple Catholicism. Here's a question for you. How do we know Jesus rose from the dead? It is Easter week. This is the, the beginning of the season that we dedicate to celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, of course, this is that time when the secular media trots out uh, its many and various uh, explanations for how, you know, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. They're, they're trying to separate the, the Christ of faith from the Jesus of history. Now, it is the fifth article of the creed that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. On the third day after his death, Jesus reunited his soul with his body and rose in glory from the grave. This is uh, the greatest, most important event of all of human history and certainly of our Catholic faith because, as St. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then empty is our preaching and empty to your faith. So uh, I want to take a look at this and, uh, and maybe ask, what do you say when somebody challenges you, when somebody asks you, how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? Because, uh, you know, and mainly our answer is from the testimony of the apostles. And they saw the risen Christ with their own eyes. They spoke with him and ate with him, touched him, most importantly, gave their lives for him. And, and skeptics have made a lot out of these so-called discrepancies in the various gospel accounts of the resurrection and the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, although these differences concern uh, details that are easily accounted for. Oh, the same way that uh, various eyewitnesses to a traffic accident uh, remember the details differently, you know, give slightly differing reports, but that doesn't change the reality of uh, the accident or, or the facts of, of the case. All that remains true. And all four Gospels agree that Jesus rose from the dead and that he appeared to the apostles and to others. And the differences, such as they are, really serve to establish the truth of the resurrection and the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, more so than if each one of those accounts was perfectly the same in every detail, at which point they would accuse us of, you know, uh, you know comparing our story to get it straight. Uh, still, though, throughout the Christian area, I mean, all through the last 2,000 years, maybe more so lately, but certainly um, in various quarters at all times since the event itself, there have been those who have doubted or who have denied outright the resurrection of Christ. Um, these days, it's frequently dismissed, dismissed as a product of wishful thinking, um, that the apostles just wanted it to be true so much that they convinced themselves that it was. And, you know, this is high-octane nonsense. This is one of the things that this program was meant to clear up because it's obvious, uh, should be readily obvious to anyone who gives a fair reading to the Gospels, um, you know, and especially seeing how much it took to convince the apostles that Jesus really was risen from the dead. You know, look at Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20, the idea that they, they convince themselves of the re resurrection via wishful thinking is just is absurd on its face. And, and another reason is that the one fact that all of the ancient sources agree on, I mean, outside of the scriptures, and whether they're Christian or Jewish or pagan, the one thing that all the ancient writers agree on is that on Easter Sunday morning, that tomb was empty. And the, the Holy Scriptures themselves, just combined with a, a dash of common sense, offer compelling evidence against the foremost enduring of these so-called natural explanations for the empty tomb. See, that's the, that's the thing that has to be accounted for. Easter Sunday morning, the tomb is empty. Why? 
And uh, probably the most popular answer, and one that gained a lot of traction back in the 19th century, is that Jesus was only unconscious and later revived. This became known as the swoon theory. Jesus, Poor Jesus just passed out and got buried by mistake. Now, anybody who's seen the movie The Passion of the Christ will understand immediately what nonsense this is. <clears throat> Our Lord was brutally scourged. He was crucified for three hours, stabbed in the heart with a spear, wrapped in a shroud, and buried in a tomb. Okay, I would suggest to you that after all of this, Christ was in no condition even to undo his winding sheet, much less push back the stone, and then make his way past the Roman guards, return to Jerusalem, sneak back through the city unrecognized, uh, you know, uh, all with his flesh hanging from him like so many bloody rags, uh, all the way to the upper room. Okay, where he knocks on the door and says, look, I rose from the dead. I don't think so. I, I think that's nonsense. And, and <laughs> whatever the shortcomings of the Roman soldiers, they certainly knew how to execute people. Death is something they did well and regularly. When a person's crucified, they die from asphyxiation. You know, you're hanging there with all your weight supported by the nails in your wrists. And the only way you can breathe is to pull yourself up on the nails and, and to endure that agony over and over and over with every breath you take until you're finally overcome with exhaustion and you can't hold yourself up anymore and you suffocate. Now, the gospel tells us that, that Pilate ordered the soldiers to break the legs of Jesus and the two thieves so that they could be taken down from the cross before the beginning of the Passover, before the, the Sabbath. And the Roman soldiers, though, Scripture tells us, did not break Jesus' legs like they did the two thieves, because when they came to him, he was already dead. It's John 19. Longinus, the, the uh, soldier, pierced his heart with a spear just to make sure he was dead. And then a Roman soldier, Mark 15, 44 and 45, a Roman soldier reports to Pontius Pilate that Jesus was dead. And then Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus get permission to take Jesus' body down from the cross, which they then wrapped uh, in the, the shroud and placed in a tomb. So there is no doubt that Jesus was, in fact, dead. That's just, it's ridiculous. The second uh, natural explanation, so-called, is that the holy women just went to the wrong tomb on Easter Sunday. You know, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They just went to an empty tomb that they mistook for, for where he had been buried. Now, <laughs> Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were there when Jesus was placed in the tomb on Good Friday. That's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Place them at the tomb on Good Friday, at his interment. It is it's inconceivable that they would ever forget the place of his burial if they lived to be a hundred much less that they would all suffer collective amnesia the following Sunday and all go to the wrong tomb. I don't think so. Uh, the third of four is that unknown thieves stole the body of Jesus. Uh, to which I would ask, to what end? Of what use would the body be to some unnamed contingent of, of, uh, of thieves? You know, and consider the account of Peter and John. I think this is really important on a couple of levels. Because they also, after, after Mary Magdalene came to the upper room to tell the apostles Jesus was risen, they did not believe her. But Peter and John went to investigate to see if, in fact, the tomb really was empty. And they didn't go to the wrong tomb, too, okay? So they both ran, the scripture says, but the other disciple, that is John, ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. 
He bent down and saw the burial cloths there, but did not go in. When St. Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial cloths there, and the cloth that had covered his head, not with the burial cloth, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. Now, what that biblical account is telling us that there is some special feature about the state of those burial cloths, the shroud and the napkin that had covered his, his face, that caused the beloved disciple to believe that he'd risen from the dead. Now, some scholars would say, well, it's the, the details about the cloths emphasize the fact that the grave had not been robbed, right? So, and that, that refutes the idea that the, that the body was stolen. But others suggest, and I will suggest, that it's because the cloths in question are the cloths that are known today as the Sidorium of Oviedo and the Shroud of Turin. Uh, the Shroud of Turin, of course, which has the miraculous image of our Lord Jesus, both a frontal and dorsal image, which is visible evidence of the resurrection. Hence, they saw the cloths and they believed. And then the fourth uh, explanation is kind of the most ridiculous of all, and it's a twofer. The Jewish leaders or the disciples themselves stole the body. Now, these explanations are both nonsense. First of all, because the tomb was sealed and guarded by Roman soldiers at the request of the, the Jewish leadership, by the way. And, and if the Jewish leaders had taken our Lord's body, which doesn't make any sense in the first place, but if they did have it, they would certainly have produced it in order to put an end once and for all to, to the claims of his resurrection. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There's his corpse. That would have been, that's a, that's a slam dunk. As for the apostles, and this is uh, uh, something that the, the Jewish leaders of the day contended. They say the, the apostles stole a body so they could claim that he rose from the dead. Okay. Let's assume that was true. Let's assume they did steal his body to claim that he had uh, resurrected. What would that mean? Well, it would mean that they would have known for a fact that Jesus was a fraud and a failure and that their faith in him was meaningless. Remember, uh, Christianity at that time was just a handful of people in defiance of the entire Roman Empire and the Jewish establishment. There was nothing to be gained by being a Christian in those days except eternal life, but only if Jesus had risen from the dead. And we know that before the resurrection, the apostles were in hiding for fear of the Jews, and after the resurrection, they were, all of them, ready to suffer and die for their faith. Now, as far as we know, nobody actually saw Christ rise from the dead. But the facts of the case are undeniable. Jesus died, and on the third day, his tomb was found empty. The resurrection appearances followed, the disciples believed, and for them, the resurrection is what made the difference. In the case of the apostles in particular, their belief in the risen Christ was so complete and so unqualified and so absolute that every one of them, according to the unanimous uh, tradition of the early church, the unanimous testimony of history, including non-Christian, they all died rather than deny the resurrection. Each one of them dying a cruel martyr's death with the exception of John, who suffered torture and died in exile. This is the most eloquent testimony to the truth of what they believed because nobody embraces death 
especially a cruel martyr's death, for a lie. You know, only the smallest fraction of people will die for something they, that they believe to be true, even if that belief is misplaced. But nobody willingly dies for what they know is a lie. So what does the resurrection prove to us today? Well, it proves that Jesus was the Son of God who said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And that one day we will also rise. As St. Paul says, just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will come to life again. And that, my good friends, is no nonsense. Okay, we just had the, the Easter Triduum. And in uh, some places, at least, uh, they were able to have the people coming into the church. In fact, our parish, we actually received 50 people into the uh, Holy Catholic Church at the Easter Vigil on Good Saturday. And we're going to talk about the gift that they received, the gift of the Holy Spirit, when we come back with lots more here on today's No Nonsense Catholic. You're listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you with us. Lots more coming up. So stay tuned, and we will be right back after these messages. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Over the last few years, and several times in the last year, I've spoken about St. John Paul II's pastoral plan for the whole church in the third millennium, which was uh, proposed in his document, Novo Millennio Iniente. The overarching theme of this plan is holiness. And that was also the principal theme of Lumen Gentium, which was Vatican II's dogmatic constitution on the church, where we read in chapter 5, and I quote, The Lord Jesus, the divine teacher and model of all perfection, preached holiness of life to each and every one of his disciples of every condition. Thus it is evident that all the faithful of Christ, of whatever rank or status, are called to the fullness of Christian life and to the perfection of charity. In the words of our Lord Jesus himself, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is what the medievals called the quest for Christian perfection and what uh, Vatican II called the universal call to holiness. And in this tradition, St. John Paul II did something unique, actually. I think it's the first time in the history of history that a pope actually laid out a, a specific pastoral plan for the whole church in this way. Um, and it's a seven-step plan for Catholics in the third millennium, step five of which is to live by grace and by the Spirit. Now, the question is, for, for you and me, as well as those who have just come into full communion with the Church at Easter Vigil, how do we live by the Spirit, quote-unquote? And that's what I want to talk about a little today, is the gift of the Holy Ghost. All right, not the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, etc., but the gift of the third person of the Blessed Trinity. The Holy Ghost, uh, and by the way, when I say Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit, more or less interchangeably, um, and Richie and I were actually talking about this last week, that uh, the translation of, of Spiritus Sanctus as Holy Ghost in English is generally used in reference to the third person of the Trinity because a ghost represents a, a person or a personality, where a spirit is an abstraction. Right, So the actions of the Holy Ghost, we can talk about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God, and so forth, in the same way that you talk about uh, 
uh, the spirit of the age or team spirit and so forth. Whereas when you're talking about the third person, we, we use uh, Holy Ghost. And again, that because of the evolving nature of English, that distinction has become blurred to the point that we not only, you know, for a while we use them interchangeably, and now we use Holy Spirit uh, pretty much exclusively, uh, say, in the Church's liturgy. However, uh, uh, the Holy Ghost is truly God, like the Father and the Son. But I, of the three divine persons, you know, the Holy Ghost, I would say, is the least known and uh, probably because he's the hardest to describe. I mean, we have, a, we have a pretty good conception of what it means to be a father or to be a son, but how can the love between the father and son constitute a third person in the one divine nature? You know, in Scripture, uh, Christ describes the Holy Ghost as the paraclete, the advocate, helper, counselor, um, the spirit of truth that he promises will be with us always and whom the world cannot accept because it neither sees nor recognizes him. Right, this is in John 14. Jesus tells the apostles in John 16 that paraclete, the Holy Ghost that the Father will send in my name, he will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. All right, that's in John uh, 14 again. But in John 16, he says, when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you to all truth. But this paraclete, helper, counselor, advocate, these terms describe what the Holy Ghost does, not who the Holy Ghost is. You know, in Catholic art, um, the third person of the Trinity is most often depicted as a dove because he appeared in the form of a dove at our Lord's baptism. And why a dove? <laughs> you know, that's a pretty reasonable answer, or a question rather. Well, in Scripture, of course, in the Old Testament, the dove represents peace and reconciliation, which, of course, is appropriate for the, the Holy Ghost. You think of the dove that Noah sent from the ark after the flood. Um, the dove also stands for divine inspiration. Uh, so, for example, after Peter's confession of faith, you know, Jesus says, who, who do you say that I am? Peter says, thou art the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to me, but my father. And he calls him Simon Barjona, means son of the dove. All right. So uh, among ancient peoples, the dove was a symbol of, of divinity. And this is something of which the Jews were certainly aware. So, so the dove emphasizes the divinity of the Holy Ghost as the third person of the, of the Blessed Trinity. Also, the Holy Ghost is represented in art and in Scripture as uh, fire, you know, uh, giving heat and light. So on the first Christian Pentecost, the Holy Ghost came down on the, the apostles and the Blessed Virgin, the Holy Women, the other disciples, as in the form of tongues of fire. You know, Pentecost was already a Jewish holy day, the memorial of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, right? And on Mount Sinai, 50 days after Passover. And it's significant that God should choose this great feast to send the Holy Spirit to the early church gathered in the upper room because Jews from all around the known world were in Jerusalem for Passover. And so Peter's sermon the next day, and, and you know, and, and not to mention all the thousands of baptisms that followed, all those, all those newly minted Christians returned to their own cities to spread the good news all over the Roman Empire. And, you know, it was, it was shown us as tongues of fire. And it was, again, the, the, the fire on Mount Sinai and the fire in the burning bush. And so the, the fiery tongues point to the uh, divine presence of the Holy Spirit and not inspiring fear uh, as on Mount Sinai. You know, think of uh, Moses coming down and, and finding the big bacchanal at the bottom of the, of the mountain. Um, 
but but bringing supernatural illumination, right? The tongues of fire suggest how the apostles were empowered to speak in every language and, and the burning zeal that the Spirit produced in them. So even today, the shape of a bishop's mitre, that odd pointy hat that bishops wear, it's meant to uh, resemble or to represent a flame, right? That, that tongue of fire uh, at Pentecost that came down on the apostles, and because the bishops are the successors of the apostles by the grace of the Holy Spirit. So it's all, it's all connected. You know, you often hear about the brotherhood of man and that we're all God's children. People say that a lot. All men are brothers. We're all God's children. And, and Scripture tells me that I am safe in his loving care and that God loves me even more than my own mother. May she rest in peace. Uh, God told the prophet Isaiah, Can a mother forget her infant, be without tenderness for the child of her womb? But even should she forget, I will never forget you. But Scripture tells me that I'm not a child of God by nature. That, that was lost, that relationship broken by the original sin. So I'm the child of God by divine adoption through baptism, and that comes about by the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a new birth precisely as a child of God, right? Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again from above by water and the Holy Spirit. In, order, in other words, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Because when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, baptism didn't transform him. Obviously, he didn't need to be baptized, but he transformed baptism from a symbolic ritual cleansing to, to a sacrament that actually accomplishes what it symbolizes. So in the waters of baptism, our sins really are washed away, and, and the Holy Spirit really does descend on us, just as he did on Jesus when, when our Lord came up out of the water at his baptism. And again, like Jesus, God the Father looks down and says, Behold, this is my beloved child, in whom I am well pleased, on whom my favor, my grace rests. And then the Holy Ghost comes to us in a special way at confirmation. That's one of the reasons the Easter Vigil is so powerful. When adult converts come in and they get baptism and confirmation and Holy Communion all in the same Mass. You know, that, that confirmation, that's the sacrament by which the, those who are born in baptism receive the seal of the Holy Spirit and the, the gift of the Father and the Son. And confirmation unites us more perfectly with the Church, gives us a special strength of the Holy Spirit. That's why we used to, to refer to uh, uh, those who have been confirmed as soldiers in Christ's army. And like the apostles, the Holy Spirit helped to bring, helps to bring us to Jesus Christ and to help us bring his example and his way of life and his church to others. I mean, that's evangelization, which is step seven of, of uh, St. John Paul's plan, by the way. And we need to pray often for the grace to live our confirmation and to, to share the faith. And we believe that so long as we're in the state of grace, the Holy Spirit lives in our soul and makes us holy by sanctifying grace, which is God's own life in us. And by giving us the virtues, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity that come with the divine life. The Holy Spirit gives us the virtue of faith by helping us to believe God's word and to know that he loves and cares for us and that we can trust him. The virtue of hope is given us by, by the Spirit because Jesus promised us his love and care forever and that he'll never leave us if we remain united with him. And the Holy Spirit gives us the virtue of love love of God and love of neighbor, because they too belong to him. And the presence of the Holy Spirit, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, enables us to love with the love of God, even our enemies, if we will it so. And then the Holy Spirit also gives us actual grace, the grace we need 
uh, for intellect and will, that special help uh, that gives light to the mind and strength to the will to choose the good and do the good and avoid what is evil. You know, I think the scripture says that uh, the world doesn't accept the Holy Spirit because they don't see or recognize him, but we do. We see and recognize the Holy Ghost in the church and in our own lives. And he came at Pentecost to remain with the church forever. And that's when the church became a visible society, a city on the hill, as Jesus would have it. The Catholic Church is the community of those who believe in Christ as Lord. And it's the crucified and risen Jesus that leads people to the Father through the Holy Spirit. And you can see that in all the liturgical prayers. It's through the Holy Spirit that the church carries on the work of salvation that's entrusted to it by Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that has guided the popes and bishops and priests of the church uh, in their teaching of Christ's doctrine, guiding soul, giving the grace of the sacraments all through the centuries. And it's the Holy Spirit that um, directs the works of Christ in the church, which is, you know, care of the sick, the teaching of children, comforting the sorrows, supporting the, the, the needy. St. Paul said, are you not aware that you are the temple of the Holy Ghost and that the Spirit of God dwells within you? Grace, it's a gift. It's God's gift of himself. And by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we're united to the Father and the Son in a union of love. The love between the Father and the Son, the soul of the church. And your soul is his temple. And when we come back, we're going to expound on that with the most important insight revealed to us by God as we continue with No Nonsense Catholic right after these messages on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, and we were just talking about how the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, lives in your soul as in a temple. You know, uh, by analogy, we refer to God the Father as Creator, to God the Son as Redeemer, and to God the Holy Spirit as Sanctifier. But really, whenever one person of the Holy Trinity acts, all the persons are are acting, because while there are three persons, there's only one God, only one divine nature. Hence, Our Lady of America, in her recently uh, approved for private devotion revelations, uh, teaches us to be especially devoted to the indwelling of the Holy Trinity, That that it's God that resides in your soul, and that means all the persons of God. And I bring this up, it's kind of a theological distinction, but I bring it up because to give context to a question, and that is, what would you say is the single most important insight that God has revealed to us? Now, I'm going to give this some further context by saying that uh, the insights to follow are largely uh, taken from Father Bill McCarthy. A number of years ago, I went out to um, Cromwell, Connecticut, where Father Bill um, runs the Our Father's House, which is a, it's like a retreat center. And he is, I mean, when I met him, he was already an octogenarian uh, priest and uh, maintaining a schedule that would have exhausted a man half his age. And he, um, you know, he's a retreat master. He gives spiritual direction. 
He's also a uh, professor at uh, the Holy Apostle, Holy Apostle Seminary there in Cromwell. He's professor of Marian studies, and so we had a lot in common. He actually had me come out to, uh, to lecture about Our Lady of Good Success. I wound up giving, I think, four or five talks as well as a, a one-day conference, you know, an all-day conference at the, uh, at the retreat house with him and, uh, and uh, the uh, laywoman that uh, also runs it with him. I'm sorry, her name escapes me right now, who did a, a presentation on Our Lady of Guadalupe. And, uh, and Father McCarthy talked about John Paul II's seven-step plan, and he gave that to me. You know, go shout this from the rooftops. Not enough people know about it. And, and it was Father McCarthy who says, you know, what, what's the single most important insight that God's revealed to us? And he says the answer is that Jesus lives in our hearts. It's an, and, and that's an exciting and, and totally transforming insight. Because Jesus lives in our hearts, we have a new nature. Now we're talking, because we always talk about how the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and I'm making that distinction that, that it, it is, it's the persons of the Trinity. Catechism of the Catholic Church says in, in paragraph 1692, what faith confesses, the sacraments communicate. By the sacraments of rebirth, Christians have become children of God, partakers of the divine nature. And that, you know, and Father's like, this is an awesome realization, that God began the first order of creation with a man, Adam, and a woman, Eve. And from them, our first parents, we receive our human nature. But as we all know, Adam and Eve sinned. And as a result of that, they, they gave our birthright of our human nature to Satan. And God, because he'd given them free will, you know, you can't take that back. But, uh, you know, from the very beginning, he promised uh, that we would receive a new nature. Uh, God's own spirit, God's own son living within us, that there would be a redeemer. And so we are, you know, the baptized are temples of God. And he, uh, Father reckons it like the, the temple in Jerusalem, that there are three courts, an outer court and an inner court, and, and, and a, uh, a, a, a inmost court, if you will, like the Holy of Holies. So um, our bodies are the outer court and our souls with our, with our spiritual faculties of intellect and will, that's, that's, and, and love, that's the inmost court. And then we have this sacred well, or the inner court, and then, then we have the, the sacred well, the inmost court of our spirits, and that it is in this inmost heart of man that the Spirit of God dwells, as in the Holy of Holies. That this is the core of our beings, and that we are made in the image of likeness and likeness of God. Right? That like Jesus, we have two natures. We have a human nature, and then we have a participation in his divine nature. St. Thomas uh, said, and I think he was quoting uh, John Chrysostom, but uh, in the Summa, he says that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. And he said, if Adam and Eve had never sinned, we would have gone to heaven without a struggle. But, you know, it's Easter time, and in the Easter proc proclamation, in the exultate, we say, O Felix culpa, O happy fault that earned so great so glorious a redeemer. You know, even the sin of Adam is viewed <laughs> as fortunate because it brought about the blessedness of the redemption. You talk about rejoicing in all things. But, but that's the point that Father's making, is that, you know, if, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, then the order of creation would have been God and then angels and then us, right? We would have gone to heaven without the struggle. 
But now, as the adopted sons and daughters of God through grace, we will go to heaven, yeah, but the order of creation has changed. Now it will be God, and then us, and then the angels. Which, you know, I mean, some of the fathers and doctors of the church tell us that's what caused Satan's rebellion, is that's what was revealed to the angels. And that uh, Satan in his pride couldn't uh, reconcile himself being lower than, than one of these you know, physical creatures. But the point is that an angel, of course, will always have an angelic nature. And that angelic nature is much higher than our human nature by itself. But we now eternally share, uh, uh, in a, eternally have a participation in God's own essence, in his nature. We shall be forever God's own children. And that is an awesome uh, realization. Again, from paragraph 1692, Catechism says, coming to see in uh, the faith their new dignity as partakers in the divine nature, Christians are called to lead henceforth a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. They are made capable of doing so by the grace of Christ and the gifts of his spirit, which they receive through the sacraments and through prayer. And uh, it reminds me of what Pope St. Leo the Great said, um, you know, back in in the the very early Middle Ages. So this is probably in the ninth century. He said, Christian, recognize your dignity. And now that you share in God's own nature, do not return to your former base condition by sin. Remember who is your head and of whose body you are a member. Never forget that you have been rescued from the power of darkness and brought into the light of the kingdom of God. So this is not some newfangled teaching, okay? It's not, not something, not post-Vatican II, new catechism teaching. This, this goes, you know, all the way back to the beginning, that we have a new nature, a new dignity, and therefore a new identity. You know, uh, Pope St. John Paul II frequently talked about Jesus revealing men and women to themselves. That, in other words, without Christ, we don't know who we are. And, and most people think they're simply human beings, and, and, and they miss the whole point of Christianity. And I, this is made even more poignant in our own times, when, you know, it's not just about Christians having some kind of identity crisis, uh, you know, of where they belong in the body of Christ and so forth, but, but in our kind of post-Christian society, people don't, people don't even know who they are at all. Paul, uh, Pope St. John Paul II said that, that, that Christ reveals men and women to themselves, and now people are confused about whether, they're, whether they are men or women, or, or some third thing, or fourth thing, or, or you know, however many genders now they've piled up. But the, 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 the meaning of Christianity, the whole essence of the baptism and dignity of grace and new life, the whole significance of the incarnation, the whole purpose of baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist, it's all tied up with this new nature, this new identity. Because the truth of the matter is that you and I, friend, the, those of us among the baptized, we are not simply human beings. We are temples of the Spirit of God. We're other Christs. We're, we're, we're children of God made into his image and likeness by grace. That is who you really are. And if I said, you know, who are you? And you say, well, I'm John Smith, and I'm, I'm, I'm Mary Jones. You'd miss the whole point of your Christian existence. For in you now there is so much more than meets the eye that you can say with St. Paul, I live now, not I, but Jesus Christ liveth within me. 
Because Christ reigns in our hearts, uh, beginning with our baptism, we are participants in the new and eternal covenant that Jesus made with mankind. You know, and of course we've talked about this many times before, that God the Father, you know, through Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, uh, David, and the prophets cut this covenant, this blood covenant with mankind. But that he renewed that covenant, fulfilled it in a new and eternal covenant through Jesus Christ, not with one man or one family or one tribe or one uh, nation or one kingdom, but with everyone, with the whole of humanity. And he did that through his son, Jesus Christ. And the essence of that covenant is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And in the essence of the fulfillment of that covenant, covenant is what Jesus taught us. I will be your father and you will be my children. If we surrender to God all that we are and all that we have because he is our God, he will give to us all that he is and all that he has because we are his children and he is our loving father. We are, therefore, as scripture tells us, made joint heirs with Christ, joint heirs of of the kingdom, of all the blessings and graces and gifts of the father. Because as Jesus taught us, he is our Father. So what what God's been doing uh, on the earth from the beginning, and of course Scott Hahn has made this abundantly clear in the the body of his work over the years, is that what God's doing upon earth through these covenants is creating family, creating family his way. When we were born, you and I, we were placed in a natural family. But when we received our new birth at baptism, uh, God became our Father. Christ became our brother. Mary became our mother. And we all became brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are members of God's family forever. So when God said, let us make man and woman in our image and likeness, he made us to be participators in his family. For the God we worship as Christians is a family. In his deepest essence, as St. John Paul said, he's not a, a solitude, but a family having fatherhood and sonship and the essence of family, which is love. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost deferring to one another, loving one another, delighting in one another as members of one divine family to which you and I, my dear, dear friends, all belong. Okay, that's another hour has flown by. Looking very much forward to coming back with you next week. You know, we're going to talk next week a little bit about talking to God, what prayer really is and how it is that we can not merely talk to God, but learn to listen and hear the voice of God in our lives. So all of that and more when we return next week with lots more new nonsense Catholic. In the meantime, thank you for listening. May God richly bless you and your family. <laughs>